Hello, we're live. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. Welcome to Debut Spotlight. I am so, so excited about my guest to name, her guest today. <laughs> her name is Katie Gutierrez, and her book is phenomenal. More than you'll ever know. This is her debut. It just dropped, and it's been everywhere. I mean, this book is everywhere. Katie, congratulations. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to have you. So for those um, listening who don't know you, I'm just going to read your very brief bio, which is in the back of your book. Um, Katie has an MFA from Texas State University, and her writing has appeared in Time, Harper's Bazaar, The Washington Post, and more. She was born and raised in Laredo, Texas, and lives in San Antonio with her husband and their two children. This is her first novel, which is unbelievable. Okay, so I've already apologized to Katie because I have a horrific American accent. And so I slaughtered the pronunciation of her name. And but I'm trying. I don't I just don't speak Spanish. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm so excited to have you here, Katie. So please tell us what is your amazing book about? Sure. Um, it is about Lora Rivera, who is a South Texas woman who's secretly married to two men at the same time in the 1980s, and Cassie Bowman, who's the aspiring true crime writer in 2017 who becomes obsessed with telling her story. Um, so it's an examination of marriage, motherhood, um, female ambition and desire, and also our weird cultural obsession with true crime. You just rattle that off. I mean, you're so well practiced. I pitch. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot in there, right? A lot that I want to unpack in our half hour together. I feel like I could talk to you for three hours about all of this, but we're going to try to pack it in. Um, so, but just before we even get started, I want to talk about the fact that um, this is really right around this obsession, this current obsession we have with true crime. Can you just talk about that a little bit and sort of why, help me understand how you put that into the book? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've always been drawn to crime stories, first in fiction and then sort of in the background as my parents would watch shows like Unsolved Mysteries or The First 48, things like that. And then when Serial came on the scene, I got obsessed with it along with everybody else. And that was sort of my gateway into being a more active consumer of true crime. But the language that we use around true crime consumption is really unnerving to me. Like when we call ourselves fans of true crime or, or true crime fanatics or whatever the case may be. And, and there's there's something about that juxtaposition of this ravenous consumption of crime as entertainment that that just conflicts me. And so um, I wanted to incorporate that into the book in the form of this relationship between journalist and subject and explore what the power dynamics between them look like as one of them is trying not just to um, uncover the truth, but also to craft a narrative about it. And then the other one who's kind of crafted her own narrative over the years and, and has her own reasons to be hiding elements of the truth. Um, so I guess in those ways, I sort of wanted to play with the idea of, you know, what is what is the true and true crime and and who gets to create that truth? Yeah. What I really loved about your approach to this uh, true crime is, first of all, I share your sort of unease with this, mm. right? And and this that I find it disturbing that people like to listen to, watch, follow true crime in this way, but also in the way that women are spotlighted in true crime, right? And that yeah. often it is uh, violence against women. Can you help us understand how you talk about that and how you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started asking myself, you know, why am I drawn to these stories when they always seem to revolve around a dead woman or a woman in peril? And all the stories, all, or predominantly the stories also tend to feature white women as kind of the ideal victim, like the victim that is the most universally sympathetic. 
And, you know, I started to kind of ask myself, well, why is that? Why is it always the white woman? And also, are white women murdered at the rates at which we can be led to believe, you know, in true crime? And when I started doing that that kind of research, I was surprised to find that 80% of murder victims are actually male, and that of the 20% of, of female murder victims, white women make up about their stake in the population, but Black women are murdered at about two to three times their rate in the population. And trans women experience violent crime at like four to five times the rate of cis women. But those are not the stories we're hearing, right? And, and so kind of implicit in that is this idea that Black women and trans women and all sorts of categories of women, poor women, brown women, um, are not as universally sympathetic as white women. And even then, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways that, that white women, too, are blamed in, in some ways for the crimes against them. So um, so there's something really fascinating about the fact that, you know, here women are as, as the biggest, you know, audience of true crime. And yet we're being disproportionately represented as mm-hmm. victims in general, but then more specifically, you know, white women victims. And so I wanted to kind of explore the idea of a journalist who is very much in this world. She's writing her own sensational clickbait stories that very much feed into this uh, trope. Uh, and she wants this is Cassie's to, job. This just is Cassie's for those who job. haven't read the book. Right? Yeah, sort of a very oxygenish, you know, uh, like a kind of trashy crew, true crime blog. And she wants to tell uh, like a more feminist true crime story where the woman is not the victim. Mm-hmm. She doesn't end up dead. And in fact, she is the perpetrator. And even better, she's not even white. And so she has, I think, some level of good intentions, but she's very clouded by her own past with violence against women, um, as well as, you know, her lifelong consumption of true crime. And so I think that those biases and blind spots um, come up in her reporting and in her developing relationship with Lore in ways that um, impact how the story is eventually told. Yeah. So, I mean, really what we're talking about is true crime is violence against women, right? Mm -hmm. And that's this obsession and women are obsessed with it. And, um, and I just find that so disturbing. And I thought that you threaded that needle. You wa- you brought this to the front very well. I thought it was very <laughs> impressive, right? It wasn't just to sensationalize it. It wasn't just yeah. to say, isn't this cool, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not. And you made yeah. that clear. So I love that. Yeah. So I have you. to say um, that uh, very early on in the book, I fell in love with this book. I got a copy a few months ago. I was very lucky to get an early <laughs> copy. And um, you have this paragraph where you say, uh, I guess it's a conversation, um, and one of the people says, what do philosophers do? <laughs> this is amazing. We're talking about philosophy. But behind that is the question of what is good? What mm. is a good woman? What is a good girl? Right? What does it mean to be good? Please talk to me about that, what you were thinking you know, as a sort of a frame to the book. I read it as a frame to the book. So could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I started to think about the idea of being a good woman as as even starting from being a good girl when I had my daughter and I caught myself at different times, you know, praising her with like, oh, that's, a, you know, that's a good girl, almost like a puppy, right? Because she was still right. a baby. Right. And I would catch myself doing that and thinking like, okay, what, what do I mean when I'm praising her for being a good girl? Like I'm literally praising her for being obedient. And right. so is, is our definition of being a good girl and a good woman and a good wife and a good mother, is that all tied into this idea of obedience, right? And what happens if a woman kind of shirks this idea of obedience in 
this really big way. Um, and yet she still kind of fundamentally sees herself as good. Um, whether or not that's delusional, I think is kind of up to the reader's interpretation. Um, but I wanted to, yeah, sort of like tug at this idea of, of what it means to be a good woman and a, and a good mother, right? Because she is a mother of twin boys. She becomes a stepmother to two kids. She loves these four kids and she is able to, um, to tell herself that she is still a good mother despite her actions. She's able to tell herself that what she's doing, you know, with this double marriage has nothing to do with the children and everything to do with something she is seeking internally. And so are we inherently bad mothers if we yearn for and kind of um, go out and actively seek something that is that has nothing to do with our kids? Um, are you a bad mom if you want something beyond motherhood? Um, and obviously this is extreme. And I think the case can be argued that she's probably not a great mom. <laughs> but, uh, but those were the questions I kind of wanted to engage with. And, and for Cassie's mom as well. Um, so Cassie's mom, and that one is sort of, I wanted to approach it from the daughter's perspective, you know, so the perspective of somebody who's directly impacted by her mother's actions and her parents' actions. Yeah. Um, because I didn't want to also ignore that those repercussions, like the ripple effects of a parent's behavior. Um, so yeah, I just, I kind of wanted to, to play with that from a couple of different angles. I love it because it's not just a dichotomy in real life. It's not just good mm -hmm. or bad. There are lots of shades in between. And right. I really thought that that's what you were getting at. Yeah. Also to be clear, for those of you who are listening, who have not read this book, um, Cassie herself is the journalist or the one digging in, but she's a huge part of the story. It is as much about her, right? It's not just the murders, the two marriages, right? Cross border, like it is as much about Cassie and her past. Um, Mm -hmm. which I was surprised about and I also really loved. I thought that was great. But going back to motherhood, I think you use a phrase, the cruel banality of motherhood, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You talk about that, that your, your main character, Laura, seems lost to that, um, or that she's trying to look for a way out of that. And I just thought, what a phrase, the cruel banality of motherhood. Please help me understand how you came to that. <laughs> Sure. Um, so I started drafting this book when I got pregnant <clears throat> with my first daughter. I think I had just started drafting it when I found out that I was. How pregnant. long ago was that? 2017. Okay. And so, and I'd been trying to get pregnant for a couple of years. We had, you know, fertility issues. Um, you know, in between, I'd been working on another book. We, I actually went on submission with the book. It didn't sell. So then I started working on this one and found out I was pregnant right at the same time. And, um, you know, so it was a couple of different things happening there. One was kind of like this um, fear of what was going to happen to my writing life uh, after the baby came. And then after she did come, it was learning, like really learn, like learning it firsthand, you know, how writing would sort of have to get fit into her schedule rather than the other way around. And so I became very much like a nap time writer. Um, and that the act of writing and of sitting down and kind of immersing myself in this world kind of let me escape that cruel banality of motherhood because the rest of the time, you know, as much as I was obsessed with my baby, it was, you know, it's so repetitive in those early days. Everything is about, you know, feeding them and changing them and helping them sleep and, it sounds so basic, but when you're in it, it is completely all consuming. Like all you can think about, because it's it's literally, you're keeping this, this tiny helpless creature alive and there's yes. nothing more important than that. And yet it's also very boring. And so, yes. you know, so it's this, it's this really strange dichotomy of like, you know, I, I had a lot of anxiety with my first child that I think was like 
probably undiagnosed postpartum anxiety. Um, <clears throat> and it was leading my mind to all sorts of weird places. And so in certain ways, I also felt very creative at the time without a, a lot of time to kind of like do anything with that creativity. So it's this, there were so many overwhelming and powerful emotions pressed right up against this completely boring and mundane repetition, you know? Yeah. And I felt like without these short times in my day, it was like I was just sort of stuck in my own body in this role that I chose, but that was still very challenging. Um, in all these very ordinary ways. And so, yeah, I think that when the story, the 1980s storyline begins, Lore is about 33, I think, and she, her twins are 12. And so she's kind of beyond those early days of, of being so essential to her children. And um, and now she's entering into a time there. And she's working full time. She's very she's, successful. Right. So she is actually the primary um, earner for their family at this time because her yes. husband's ironwork store is not doing well in this recession. And he's very much obsessed with like his role as a provider and the fact that he seems to be losing it, whereas right. Lore is very successful. And so she's entering into this new phase of her adult life as a mother and as a wife and as a woman. And so I, I think that in that space, um, this little gap opens up and that's the door, you know, that she ends up stepping through. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there is a literal border in the book, right? Because mm -hmm. she has one husband that lives in the U.S. and one that lives in Mexico. She literally, right, <laughs> goes yeah. across the border. There's that yeah. line right in her life. Um, but then also there are points a couple of times throughout the book where she says, when did I cross that line? Was mm -hmm. it the moment that I forgot to wear my wedding ring? Was it the moment that, you know, I didn't say that I had a boyfriend? Because I don't know, right? Was it the moment yeah. that I, you know, said I would dance with him? Was it the moment that I said I, you know, that I kissed him. What mm -hmm. is that line? Um, and I thought you brought that up very well and brought that out with the border itself. Mm -hmm. So what yeah. did you do that all on purpose? You know? I did. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was, I think it worked out really well because obviously Laredo is my hometown. It's very much like a city of duality, particularly in these years, the eighties, really up until probably 2000 or so. Um, the border was so fluid, you know, like my, my mom tells stories about when she and her five brothers and sisters used to cross it on foot, no adult supervision, you know, to go visit um, their nanny who lived, she would go back home on the weekends. And then during the week, she lived with them. And she ended up, she actually moved in with us when I was born. And she lived with us my entire life until she passed away. And so she was like a member of, of the family. And so they would cross over on the weekends to visit her and, and then cross back. And, you know, Mexican shoppers would come to Laredo every single day and, you know, buy, spend their money downtown and, and really like retail money from across is like the lifeblood of Laredo. Um, and so Laredo is the city that is, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's a place that I thought was very boring when I was growing up there. But when I left, I was like, this is like no other place I've ever been to. Um, you know, it is this yeah. skin between um, Mexico and America. So it's this like sliver of a place that's both and neither. And, um, and so I wanted to play with that idea in both women, but then also, like you said, use the border um, as kind of this like, what is the differentiating line between right and wrong or, or one action that kind of um, builds upon itself into this 
uh, extreme conclusion. Um, and, you know, I think both women are kind of constantly crossing internal boundaries. And there are, you know, like, what what is the boundary between, for example, like yourself as a wife or as a partner and yourself as a woman, you know, or yourself as a mother and yourself as a person, what, the line between, you know, ambition and morality, like there, there are all sorts of lines, I think that both women are crossing throughout the book. And the border was just, you know, being set in Laredo, because it's the city I'm most familiar with. Um, just, I think, lent itself to kind of playing with that idea of both boundaries and borders, as well as duality. So when I, I love that you're talking about growing up there and that thin line, um, because I think I read, although I, it was one of those things I should have written the source down and I didn't, but I think that I read in an interview that you gave that you felt this new freedom when you realized that you could put Spanish into your books, right? They didn't have to be strictly English. Is that right? Am I remembering this right? Yeah, not not so much just Spanish, but like being very particular about this part of the world, you know, because yeah. I, you know, I grew up and for the first 17 years of my life, I read one book by a Mexican American writer or by any kind of Latinx writer who was Sandra Cisneros in, with the House on Mango Street. And that was the first book I encountered that did have Spanish or Spanglish and, wow. you know, names like mine, like, you know, Esperanza. I think that's like the first line of the book. And I was like, Esperanza, like, that's a wow. name, you know, that could be in my classroom right now. Um, and I'd never encountered that before. And so, and I had this kind of like double reaction of, of happiness to see something familiar, but then also doubt about whether this counted as real literature because I'd never seen it before. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, and I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a kid. And I, you know, I, I always, that was what I told people when they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was always a writer, never anything else. And so I never felt, you know, growing up in Laredo where everybody's Mexican, I never felt marginalized. I was never othered. Um, I was the majority, you know, and so in a lot of ways, I grew up with the privileges of a majority, including, I think, the belief that I, I would be unrestricted in whatever I wanted to do. Um, <clears throat> and so even then, having having those advantages, I guess, or those privileges, even then, I still couldn't imagine writing a character with a last name like Gutierrez or placing them somewhere like Laredo. Wow. I was wow. always writing stories where they were set in cities like New York, which I'd never been to before. And, uh -huh. you know, giving them no last names, you know, it was all English. And I felt like I was writing for, quote unquote, the general reader, the average reader. And right. I, it had me so long to realize that in my mind, like the average reader was white, you know, and that I was writing toward this perceived white audience that wouldn't recognize or care about Mexican-American characters in South Texas. And it wasn't until I was like in my mid twenties and in, in my grad school program and I started reading more writers of color um, and really falling in love with those stories and the power of specificity, particularly of place, but also of culture. That I was like, well, wait a second, like, what have I been doing, <laughs> you know? And so that was when I started writing short stories that were set, you know, in sort of South and Central Texas and, you know, with Mexican-American characters, with Spanish, like trying to sort of capture like the cadence of the way people talk down here and interact and the way, you know, the way our culture kind of in like is a part of every aspect of our lives here. Um, and so that definitely kind of unlocked me, I think, wow. as a writer and toward kind of discovering, um, not, not not the exact stories I wanted to tell, but definitely discovering, I think, a way to tell whatever story right. I was drawing. And your to. voice. I mean, it sounds like you just sort of opened up at that point, right? You yeah, I think so. Yeah. Write yourself. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
That's amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so there, you know, we're talking about some really deep and heavy themes here, but also I just want to talk about the writing itself because I thought it was beautiful. Is there any chance you have a copy of the book with you? I, I do. Carry you for this. Okay. Would you mind reading one paragraph for me? I loved it. I love it, and my listeners love to hear the writer's <laughs> voice. Right. Okay. So on page forty-seven, mm -hmm. um, there's a paragraph at the bottom half. It starts: Laura falls in love with writing in seconds. Should you mind reading that one paragraph for us? Yeah. Uh, okay. Lotter falls in love with writing in seconds. It's the immediacy of it. Nothing separating her skin from the city. The rushing pavement is a shocking reminder that life is fragile, separated from death by only a gossamer veil. And somehow this closeness to the beyond heightens every sense. The smells of gasoline and cigarette smoke punctured by pockets of mysterious sweetness. The roar of the engine and wind in her ears, the taste of wine on her tongue, the feel of her body wrapped around Andres, her limbs performing silent measurements, his waist narrower than Fabian's, his legs longer. His eyes, when she catches his occasional glances in the side view mirror, are more lined in the corners, his hair losing its black tie restraint and flying back to whip her helmet. She's forgotten they have a destination. She could ride with him all night, learning a new language of pointing and squeezing and patting, People waste so much time talking when talk so often conceals more than it reveals. Oh, I think that's so beautiful. Thank you for doing that. There's just something about hearing an author's own voice, read their words, you know? So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So then that is a moment where we start to see Lore like sort of thinking about or beginning to explore this possibility of a second life. For me, that ride was the moment where that was the divide, the border. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and we really dig into another one of my favorite themes, which are women's secrets. Mm -hmm. And we even had a line um, at one point uh, where Lori says, I think it's, she says it to Cassie, um, we're going to chat or we're going to do this one secret keeping woman to another. Yeah. And, and right in this idea that women have secrets. Can mm -hmm. you talk about that as a theme in the book? Yeah. I mean, I'm as a reader, I think I've always been compelled by characters keeping secrets. It's sort of like this instant suspense. But I'm also, you know, I'm I'm very I'm interested in in the secrets each of us keep on a daily basis, like these really tiny secrets that I think everybody keeps um, something sure. that happens, something, you know, intimate that you don't even share with your partner. But that's really small and not a big deal. Like the ways that we present ourselves to, you know, our friends or our partners, but not our kids. Um, you know, we all go through life, I think, shouldering secrets, both big and small, you know, stemming like, again, every, you know, from from the tiny daily things to past trauma that um, is very difficult to share with anybody. And I think women in particular, you know, like patriarchal society is sort of obviously set up in a way that benefits men, specifically cisgender men. And so as a result, I think women have had to get very creative about the secrets they keep and the ways that they keep them, you know, um, because anything that sort of pushes back against those restraints has always been historically sort of slapped down. And so I think that that for women, keeping secrets is almost sacred because it's it. I think historically it's been almost a way of, of staying alive and staying human. Um, and so in the book, both Cassie and Laura have secrets. And I think that in some ways their secrets mirror each other and they're able, I think, to... I think they act as mirrors for each other and they force each other to sort of see their own blind spots and acknowledge the um, effect of some of the secrets that they're keeping. And then I also, you know, with Lore, she, 
she came to me as this very sort of like unapologetic character. Um, I've compared her to the, the earthquake um, in Mexico City, you know, as this kind of force of nature that is incredibly destructive, but also kind of indifferent to the destruction. Like it's not malicious, it's natural. And, and in the destruction, or I guess um, after the destruction, there's this sense of, of revealing certain truths. Um, and I like the idea of her as being this kind of like indifferent, unapologetic woman who even in the end is, is keeping her secrets um, or at least some of them. Like she ultimately is the one with the power to kind of decide what she tells and to whom. And I think that that kind of goes back to like the true crime aspect and the power dynamics of journalist and subject. And, you know, who has who has the most power in that relationship? Is it, you know, is it the person who writes the story, who crafts and publishes it? Um, and who is therefore able to sort of make that truth? Or is it the is it the source who is the only one who can give the journalist, you know, what she needs to tell that story in the first place? And And in this book, I wanted to sort of like, flip the relationship, you know, so that it ultimately is Lore who has, I think like in my mind, she has the power of being able to kind of define what, what her truth is. Um, yeah. She does. And yet um, you also talk about how she's always underestimated or she says people underestimate her. They meet her and they think she's the assistant or she's an early mm -hmm. account rep, right? That she's not actually the one running things. Yeah. Um, right. And even though she is. Right. And like even and then so I think that happens. Yeah, that's a great point. Like it happens, you know, when she as as a young banker. And then I think it happens also, you know, when she's in her her mid to late 60s in the current in the 2017 chapters. And I think, yeah. you know, in those she's kind of experiencing this sort of like invisibility that I think women who hit a certain age can feel in our culture. Right. When they're no longer you know, they're no longer procreating. They're no longer, you know, have that that youthful beauty. Um, they're grandmothers and they're retired and they're, they're, you know, their purpose and their role in society is like quieter. And so I think that like it's very, it is very cultural, I think, to underestimate women of that age. And so um, I wanted her to continually kind of both recognize that and push back against it. Yeah. But really you wrote it as any age she was underestimated. You're right. Right. I, I just, I mean, I loved that. Yeah. I thought that was great because, right, it was, again, she had that secret and that was a theme throughout the book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. So we're going to shift gears for the last few minutes um, because my listeners love to hear about writing as a process and you as mm -hmm. a writer, write your career. And you had talked about, I love that you already shared with us that you had gone on submission with one book and it didn't go anywhere, that you've mm -hmm. been writing this book since 2017. This has been a long road. Yeah. Right? Just <laughs> jump out as this amazing bestseller. So congratulations and huge kudos to you on doing that. Um, what was the hardest part about this writing journey, about getting to this moment? Oh, uh, the endless revision with my agent, I think, because... Ah, not even your editor, with your agent. No, with my agent, because I think with my editor, it was like, I was already... Like I, you know, the, the book had sold. I had that deal. I felt a sense of security in my own career. You know, I had the, the finally, you know, knowing that, okay, this book is going to get published. Like I know I have a path for what my life will look like for the next few years. And I think that, um, you know, with my, with my agent who is incredible and I really like, I owe this to her. Um, you know, I, I'd written the previous book for two years. Uh, I queried it and, had five offers of representation within three weeks. And so there was this feeling that, you know, it was going to sell just as quickly. And obviously it didn't. And, and so that, uh, there was a real confidence. Oh, 
Yeah. And really, you know, the only thing that pulled me out of it was working on this book. But I also think it was sort of like I had this belief that it would be a lot faster than it turned out to be. And so, um, you know, when I finished the first draft, it was it was really long, like even much longer than this, which is not short, um, unwieldy, like there were a lot of really big things and small things that weren't working. And so we ended up revising it together over 18 months for probably like a dozen different rounds of revision. And she was incredible. Um, but it was kind of like every round, I felt like this has to be the last one. This has <laughs> to be like, please let it be the last one. And there was right. always, you know, there were always more notes. I remember one time I had to just say, like, I need 24 hours. I'm just feeling angry. Like, I can't respond to anything right now because I'm just mad. <laughs> oh, that's the best. I love that you're being so honest because it's so easy to look at you and see, right, you've just shot up, right? This is your debut. This is your big book. But I want other people to understand how hard you work to get here, right? And, yeah, and I think every it's... single writer works this yeah. hard, no matter how right. shiny they look. Exactly. And I think that I think that is really important because I – you know, when I was working on this and I think like uh, sort of right after my daughter was born, um, I didn't know how mothers of new kids did it, you know, how they kept writing or if they did. And and I was so grateful to the ones that I sort of found who would talk about their writing routines with their newborns and kind of what that all looked like. And so, you know, I feel like it's important to kind of talk about um, the stuff that's not really very romantic or pretty, you know, but that I think is so real for, for yes, so many of us. Real life. Yes, I love that. So what kind of advice do you have now for new writers? I mean, I think it's to just it's to just keep going, you know, like there's no there is no ideal or perfect time to write or routine to write. It's whatever works for you in whatever moments work for you, whether that's your notes app on your phone before you go to bed, whether that's your lunch break, whether it's dictating when you're on a walk. Um, like I think the pandemic years have been so challenging, you know, for for parents of kids who have been in and out of school, lack of childcare, um, for people who have other jobs, for people who have had to leave those jobs to take care of kids. So it's been extremely an extremely challenging time to I think create any kind of art and and to you know and to write. And so I think that it's really about um, doing what you can when you can and having having a strong belief in in the work and that every little bit that you work on it is pushing it forward and every and every bit of life that you live is also kind of contributing to the enrichment of the work um so yeah i know we're like at times i'm trying to not babble no too i love it <laughs> but i do want to ask you one more quick thing how about to new mothers who are trying to write yeah i mean I, I would say well two two things if if it takes a while to get back to it that's okay. You know, like it took me four or five months after having my daughter before I wrote a single word before I even opened this book again and read it. And that's, I think, a short time compared to a lot of others. Like I think a lot of others can take a year or two years before they either have the time or the, the brain space to get back to it. Um, and so I think recognizing, okay, I'm in a period of time where I'm not writing and, and, and that has to be okay for now. Like I think there's a place to accept that if you can, and if you can't, right, like if you don't feel a hole unless you're writing, then I think my advice would be, you know, to to prioritize the work and even give it and, you know, whatever you can give it like there were, you know, to me, I would do a lot of my best, I think, daydreaming about the book when I was breastfeeding my kids in the middle of the night. And I wouldn't write anything down, but I would just be thinking about it and to where the next day when I sat down at my computer, I sort of already had a plan for certain scenes. And so then yeah. the writing itself would go a lot faster. 
you know, or I would take my son to a, on a walk because he was a nightmare as soon as five o'clock hit. So we would go on a a long walk and I would kind of revise in my head and then be ready for when I sat down. So it's like kind of recognizing that the way you work is going to change and hopefully you can make it work for you for the better, but then also to be kind on yourself when, when it takes some time, you know, (laughs) when it's Katie, thank you so much. Katie Gutierrez, more than you'll ever know. This book is absolutely phenomenal. You are amazing. Congratulations. May you sell many, many copies. Thank you, Rachel.